Hebrews chapter 11. Book of Hebrews chapter 11. While you're finding your way there, I want to share with you a story about Peter Cameron Scott. Peter Cameron Scott was a gifted young singer, and his dream was to be an opera star. And he was on the steps of an opera house about to answer an ad for a chorus singer when he faced this crucial decision in his life. Would he seek a life of self-glory and applause under the spotlight of the entertainment world, or would he dedicate his life to God's service? No matter how humble, no matter how obscure the circumstances may be, no matter where God was calling him, would he answer the call to God for service, lifetime service to him, or would he choose the bright lights and the money and the fame and all that would go with this very gifted singer? It was a moment of crisis for this young man, but the decision was final, and he chose to serve God. And after making that difficult choice, he immediately took action. Peter enrolled in the New York Missionary Training College, and after graduation, he sailed to Africa in 1890. His brother soon joined him, but then his brother quickly died from the harsh conditions in Africa. Peter built his brother's coffin, even dug the grave himself. And soon his own health was broken, and he had to return to England. But his hope was renewed when he read the inscription on David Livingstone's grave in Westminster Abbey, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Scott went to America then and recruited others to join him in the cause of reaching Africa with the gospel. And with seven others, including his own sister, he returned to Africa in October of 1895. And in the first year's report, Four stations had been opened for the gospel. There were educational programs going on. There were medical programs that were happening that had been set up. And the missionaries were making progress and learning the language. It looked like things were progressing very well. But shortly after this very optimistic report, Peter, age 29, fell ill and died in December of 1896, just 14 months after his return to Africa. And soon after that, several other workers died. And others had to give up for health reasons. By the summer of 1899, just four years later, there was only one missionary remaining in Africa. The area became known as the White Man's Graveyard. More missionaries died than people became Christians during those first years. But other missionaries continued to come to Africa despite the challenges they often packed their belongings in a coffin, expecting that they would die and then at least they would have a proper burial. So they packed their belongings in a coffin and then moved to Africa to serve the Lord. But the Africans were amazed by this determination. They said, surely only a message of great importance would inspire people to move here and placed their belongings in a coffin, knowing that there was a high likelihood that they would never return back 
to their home country. What an important message they must have to deliver to us if you would take such action. Well, fast forward nearly 100 years, and in 1971, the Africa Inland Mission became the African Inland Church, and numbers in 1971, it's far greater now, were one and a half million Christians in Africa. How could someone make such a difficult choice to give up a promising and likely affluent lifestyle and instead decide to forsake it all and to carry the good news, the wonderful message of deliverance, knowingly and willingly taking upon suffering? The answer could be only by faith. And that's what we saw last week, wasn't it? in verses 23 to 26 in our text. We saw two significant choices that were made by faith. The first choice was made by the parents of Hebrew slaves in ancient Egypt who chose faith over fear. The choice they made was to choose to defy the king's edict to kill all male Hebrew babies and hide their son. And that son turned out to be Moses, the great deliverer of his people. The second choice was that of Moses himself. And it was just as difficult. Because Moses chose God over the world and gave up his position of influence and wealth in the Egyptian court in order to be identified and associated with the very people the Egyptians had enslaved, the Hebrews. Both of these choices were motivated by faith and their lessons that they teach us and what they learn have immediate application to us today and eternal consequences. Both of those choices teach us that the choice to live by faith for Christ is going to result in short-term suffering. You can bank on that. You can count on that. You will have trials as a follower of Christ. But it also comes with it eternal blessings. You get both. You get the trials, you get the tribulations, but you also get the eternal blessings. And every Christian must choose every day whether you're going to live for Christ or you're going to live for the world. And you cannot have both. Because if you choose the world, your actions have already have already uh, portrayed what's really in your heart. So either way, you identify. Every Christian must choose daily. Whether you'll take up the cross of Christ and serve him, or whether you'll choose the things that the world has to offer you to serve. And you make that decision every day of your life. But that choice is grounded in something, and it's grounded in your faith. Faith trusts in who God says he is. And what he has done for us. But faith does something else as well. Faith acts upon those beliefs. In other words, there's always a response when we make a decision daily for Christ. It's not just choosing to live for Christ. It's the actions that accompany that choice that affect our lives. I told you last week that true faith cannot remain idle or passive. True faith must, by definition, 
include a response. Include some action. It's not just faith in faith. It is faith in who God says he is and that his promises are true. And those things together then prompt a response. And that response for believers is that we choose to live for Christ every day. J.C. Ryle wrote, when you embrace faith, your whole life is affected. A faith that does not influence a person's practice is not even worthy of the name faith. In other words, if you just if you say you have faith, but it's not indicative of how you live, or if it's not if it's not the basis for the choices that you make, if it's not the grounding for the decisions that you make every day, you shouldn't really even call that your faith in Christ. Because you haven't really even lived it to the point or believed it to the point that it has produced a response in you. You see, there is no conflict between your beliefs and your behavior because whatever it is that you have faith in will inevitably show up in your actions. And that's the point of our study here in Hebrews 11. Faith always gives way to action. Faith always has a response. True saving faith always has a response. That's what we want to see here today in verses 27 to 29. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for this immense privilege I have, Lord. And I know I say that often here, but you know my heart. You know I mean it. What a privilege it is to open up your wonderful truth. Thank you for every dear saint that you've gathered here this morning to hear your truth. Lord, give us open hearts. Give us open ears, open minds to your truth. May we hear this truth, Lord, and not think that this truth is for somebody else. But rather, Lord, may we apply it to our lives first and ask, Father, what would you have me do with this? How should I apply this to my own life to bring you honor and glory. Father, that's our heart this morning. Prick our conscience. Open up our hearts to your wonderful truth. For your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at this together, shall we? Hebrews 11, verse 27 to 29. And let's look at verse 27 and read that together, shall we? By faith... He left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Let's stop right there. Verse 27, point number one in in your notes. By faith, we respond to trials with endurance. By faith, we respond to trials with endurance. Now, over our verse here this morning, and where I had you stop, is actually a reference to Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But right away, we're confronted with a problem in this verse. So I want to make sure we kind of deal with this before we move forward. He says, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Well, let's keep your thumb in Hebrews 11, but let's turn and look at Exodus chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, we have the second book of the Bible, right in the very beginning. 
when we read Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, remember this is right after uh, Moses had uh, struck the Egyptian and killed him and hid him in the sand, verse 12. He went out the next day, and two Hebrews, verse 13, were fighting, and he said to them, Why are you striking your companion? And look at verse 14, he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. When we read Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we see that Moses was afraid upon learning that the, his murder of the Egyptian taskmaster was public knowledge. It was uh, this event that led him to flee the presence of Pharaoh and dwell in the land of the Midianites. So how do we answer that? One text tells us he's not fearing. The other text tells us he is fearing. Which is it? Well, there are two views to this problem. Each view, though, carries with it other problems when you try to reconcile those two. First, let me begin by saying that in actuality, Moses left Egypt not once but twice. Here are the problems with each time Moses left. He left the first time when he was 40 years old because he had killed the Egyptian taskmaster and was afraid because the murder had become public. We see that in Exodus chapter 2. He left the second time with an entire nation, 40 years later, when he brought the ten plagues upon Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh finally let the people go. Yet chronologically, when you look in Hebrews chapter 11, they left Egypt after the Passover, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it has the Passover after this leaving. So, and when you follow Hebrews chapter 11, up to this point, it appears though he's trying to do things chronologically. So why now all of a sudden would he, would he switch things out of chronology? So that whole argument is, is based on the fact that the belief that chronology has been followed very strictly. But I will just tell you from my personal study, I don't find that argument real compelling. And the reason that I don't is because he's already kind of moved things around a little bit chronologically. For example, when you read verses 17 to 21 in Hebrews chapter 11, he talks about Abraham and he goes back and talks about Isaac and then with Joseph. But in verse 13, he's already talked about them all dying. So then he comes back and then, you know, so he talks about them all dying without seeing the promises. And then he goes back in verses 17 and on and goes, so he moves things out of chronology. He's already done that twice. And in verse 28, in describing the Passover, even though the entire Jewish nation did it. So here I understand verse 27 to refer to the Exodus when Moses courageously stood up to Pharaoh. And then verses 28 and 29 refer to two events that took place during that exodus. Okay, that's how I interpret that. You can debate with me later if you'd like after I'm done preaching. Okay, all right. Notice also in the second half of our verse in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses endured. That's, this alludes to his determined perseverance in the path that God had called him to regardless of the difficulties 
Now, he definitely had to endure some trials with Pharaoh, didn't he? Because Pharaoh, incidentally, Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world. The Egyptian army is by far, at this point in history, the most dominant military in the entire world. No question. And since Pharaoh is the head of that country and the, and the leader and the king of this country, he is by de facto the most powerful person in the world from worldly standards. And as great a persecution as, as Moses would have faced as he confronts this most powerful man in the world and tells him what God is going to do to him and to his country and to his small g gods, I think his greatest persecution was probably the ingratitude and the unfaithfulness and the rebellion of the Israelites themselves as he was leading them out of Egypt, out of bondage. Moses would not have gone face to face with Pharaoh and deliver the people had he not had faith in what God had promised him at the burning bush. Notice also here it says that Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen. And that kind of harkens us back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, doesn't it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and what? The conviction of things yet unseen or not seen. And because of Moses' great faith, he considered what God had promised as good as done. He made a choice to follow God as was revealed to him to believe that God is who he says he is and his promises are true. And then he responded. He took action. Knowing that he was going to suffer great trials. Remember, he wandered around in the desert first for 40 years after leaving the Egyptian court. Then after, uh, through God's hand and power, The people are redeemed out of Egypt. Guess how long he wandered around the desert again? Another 40 years. I mean, Moses must have known every inch of that desert after 80 years. Think about that for a second. He made that choice knowing he was going to suffer, but he still responded. He believed God's promises. He had the conviction of things not yet seen. And then that provided him the strength to persevere in the midst of the great trials he was going to face. Now, why is the author telling us this? He's telling this in hopes to show us the necessity, the sufficiency of believing and continuing to believe to sustain us through the trials that we will endure. How do you make it through the physical trials you're going through right now? How do you make it through the the spiritual trials you're going through, the emotional trials, the relationship trials. How do you get through those today? You choose to believe that God is who he says he is and that his promises are true. And then you respond. You act upon that belief. You live each day making choices that you know glorify God. You live your life as a response to the choice that you made to follow God. Moses was looking to the one he couldn't see, and that gave him the strength to endure. And the same is true for us today. 
The Apostle Paul takes these principles of Moses and he says, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's just look at this one. This is a good one for you and I as we battle trials. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentarily, this light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. Paul has taken really that same principle that Moses said and said, listen, how am I going to make it through the trials? And if you know Paul's life, he had a couple trials. I mean, most of us would be just entirely perplexed at the things that Paul had to go through in his life. And yet he calls them momentary light afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Psalm 56 Whenever I am afraid, I will trust you. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 12, Behold, God is my salvation, and I will trust and not be afraid. It is your great faith in the unseen God that provides you with the strength to respond with endurance through your trials. Let's look at verse 28 then together. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Point number two in your outline, by faith, we respond to God's promises with obedience. We respond to God's promises with obedience. Now, with God's guidance, Moses unleashed the 10 plagues on Egypt, which we find in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And the plagues, remember, were designed to destroy the Egyptians' confidence in each of their pagan gods. They had ten pagan gods, and each one, each of the plagues is specifically targeting their pagan gods and showing that the one true God is the one true God, and that their pagan gods, their idols, were not gods at all. And with each plague, it seems as if Pharaoh would relent and let the people go, and then he'd go back on his word and keep his Israelite slaves from leaving. And the final plague, you remember in Exodus 12, was to be the death of every firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And this would include even the death of every firstborn Israelite child under the Israelites, unless the Israelites followed God's careful instruction and believed his word. 
each family was to select a lamb to sacrifice. And that lamb's blood was to be painted on the door frame of each house. And the lamb was to be roasted a specific way and eaten with bitter herbs at a specific time. And that night, the Lord would go through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn of every household unless there was the lamb's blood on the lentil or the doorposts. And if there was lamb's blood, the Lord would pass over that house. Something like this had never happened before. And yet Moses and the Israelites trusted God's promises and obediently followed his commands and did exactly as God had commanded him, and they trusted God. And that night, every house in Egypt was mourning over the death of their firstborn, except those houses with the lamb's blood on the doorpost. One pastor shares an illustration that I think is helpful for us here. Consider two men, if you will, in Egypt on the afternoon before that fateful night. One is a good moral Egyptian, and the other is an immoral, dishonest Israelite. Somehow the two men have become friends, and despite their many cultural differences, they have a friendship together. The Egyptian enjoys the friendship of the Israelite, even though he doesn't understand his strange religion. And the Israelite sees so many advantages to forging a relationship with this man from Egypt. So it was, they would chat together, and they chatted together that day. And the Israelite described in some detail his plans to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. Only he didn't see a purpose in doing this strange thing. Why should he waste a perfectly good lamb, as a matter of fact, his best one, on such a useless endeavor of killing the lamb and then putting the blood around the door? The Egyptian agrees, but wonders all the while about the many terrible plagues that have fallen on his country. They part, promising to chat the next day. But that conversation never takes place. Later that afternoon, the Israelite keeps putting off killing his best lamb. And his wife pleads and begs, sweetheart, it's time. Don't wait too late. And when the appointed hour comes, he kills the lamb, but not with any enthusiasm. And he delays until the last moment, putting the blood on the doorpost. 10.30 comes and goes. Then 11 o'clock. The dear wife is fearful. She's fearful that her husband will delay too long. There are four children, including their firstborn son, who look so much like his father, gather around the table. 11.30 and still the man delays. 11.45 and still has not done it. His wife weeps before him. How can you risk the life of our oldest son like this? Grudgingly, the man takes the hyssop and applies the blood to the doorpost. His wife smiles, now satisfied because her family is safe. Midnight comes and goes, and nothing happens. Not even a sound of barking. Not even a sound is heard. Not even a dog is barking. But in Egypt, wild screaming, shrieks, wailing, women crying, fathers shouting, death everywhere, death Firstborn sons and daughters dying in their sleep. Firstborn cattle dead in their stalls. Not a family is left untouched by the destroyer. 
And in the home of the good and moral Egyptian man, sudden terror and then wailing as their 15-year-old son, the heir to the family business, their hope for the future, their comfort in old age has suddenly stopped breathing. And he dies so suddenly that he doesn't even have time to say goodbye. For those who reject the blood of Jesus, God has no other plan of salvation. Why did he die? Because there was no blood on the doorposts. But what if the Egyptian had put the blood on his door and the Israelite had not? Then the roles would be reversed. And the blood of the lamb makes the difference. For those who reject the blood of Jesus, God has no other plan of salvation. There is no plan B. There is no other way. He is God's lamb, the one whose blood covers every sin. Anyone, anywhere, at any time who comes to Jesus will not be turned away. But you have to make that choice by faith, and then you have to respond. It's not just here. You have to respond. God's way of delivering has to be applied by faith in order to be effective, my friends. To be delivered through the Passover blood, Moses and the Israelites had to trust God's promises, and then they had to obediently do what he said they must do. And if anyone disputed it by saying it's not logical that sprinkling blood on your doorpost would protect your oldest son from death, that firstborn child would have died. It would not have been enough to say, I mentally I believe, but I didn't apply the blood. I believe that God would do that, but I didn't take any action and put the blood around the door. What would have happened? Death. See, to be saved from the destroyer, the person had to believe God's warning, and then they had to respond by applying the blood around the door. The same is true with the blood of Christ. You can argue that God is the God of love, not judgment, that you don't need the blood of Christ to be saved, but you will someday learn too late that he is a God who judges sinners. And perhaps you grew up in a Christian home and you believe in a general sense, but you've never personally fled to the cross. James 2.19 tells us that you're not any better than the demons who also believe that God exists, but yet they will not be saved. It's not enough for your parents to believe on your behalf. To be saved, you must acknowledge that as a sinner, you deserve God's judgment. You must abandon all trust in yourself or your good works as a means of salvation, my friends. And you must trust in Christ's blood as God's payment for your sins. And every sinner must apply the blood of Christ to his or her heart by faith to be saved from God's judgment. There is no other way. What about you? Do you believe in God's, do you believe what God has said about his son? Do you trust in his promises? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Will you say yes? 
to the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? My friends, if you've never made that decision, if you're banking on anything other than that as your entrance into heaven, I, I, I beg you, I plead, come now and repent. You can do it right where you're at. Cry out to God. Recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Run to the cross. Don't walk. Run to the cross and lay hold of the Son of God and put your trust in Him. May God help you to come to Christ just as you are, wherever you are right now. So point number one, my friends, by faith, we respond to trials through endurance. Point number two, we respond to God's promises with obedience. Let's look then again at our last verse, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through the dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Point number three, by faith, we respond to God's word for deliverance. We respond to God's word for deliverance. And here we have the story of how after the Israelites had left Egypt, God told Moses that Pharaoh would say to the children of Israel that they were cut off in the land. And God told him that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and he would follow after the Israelites. And so it happened. By faith, Moses led the Israelites directly toward the Red Sea, knowing they were trapped against the sea. But he also believed that God had told him that he would part the Red Sea and swallow Pharaoh's army. God also told Moses to hold up his staff and part the waters. And Moses believed and in boldness and confidence told the people not to fear that God would provide the deliverance and destroy the army. Notice our verse, or our verse here. The verse says, by faith, they. You see that? We've now switched from Moses now to the Israelites in general. We're moving now to a broader spectrum. By faith, they, referring to Moses and all the people. And God made this revelation of his deliverance to all the people through Moses. And that revelation of the future, they all believed and thus were enabled to be able to walk through the waters of the Red Sea. And that lesson shows us the power of real faith in God, whatever the circumstances. It's very similar to when Moses, remember, placed the blood over the doorpost we just talked about. And we Christians are called on to also to expect very important ends by strange means. We are called to expect a complete change of our state and character by means of the death of God's Son on a cross and the means of our understanding and believing the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection. As Christians, we believe that the blood of Christ atones for our sin. And that truth seems irrational to unbelievers and probably just as irrational as people who were putting blood around their doorposts and the night of the Passover. Our believing of the revelation of salvation from our sin, from guilt and depravity, from death and hell, will enable us as, as Christians to endure all the trials and tribulations in life. The lesson to be gleaned from the Egyptians, though, as they pursue the Israelites through the Red Sea, only to be drowned It shows us, my friends, 
that the believers obtain peace with God, but all the unbelievers attempt to obtain peace will end in disappointment. Every persevering believer will certainly obtain the salvation of their soul as the end of their believing, but every person who's seeking genuine and permanent happiness without believing in him will be like the Egyptians and engulfed in the depths of destruction. That's a hard truth, isn't it? That's a hard truth, but it is the truth. The many ways faith changed the life of Moses are stamped all over God's word, all through the Old Testament. And here we're reminded that every critical stage of his life, faith shaped him for how God would use him. His parents' initial faith saved his life as they, as they had faith over fear of the king's edict. And growing up, faith led him to throw his identification with the people of Israel, the slaves, rather than the affluent lifestyle he was born into. Faith enabled him to defy rather than give in to Pharaoh, becoming obedient to the heavenly king instead of the earthly king. And faith led Moses to command the people to keep the first Passover and to walk boldly into the Red Sea. But in each of these cases, my friends, they not only made a choice, they responded. They took action upon their faith. And almost every difficulty, every challenging experience, every danger, every decision in Moses' life was, was, that he faced was on the basis of faith's obedient response. In other words, he believed God. He believed he is who he says he is. He believed in his promises. And because of that great faith, it affected every choice that he made. And every choice that he made had a response. The, the same is true for you and I, my friends. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. It's believing he is who he says he is. It is believing that his word is true and that his promises are true. And that God will move in his will, according to his divine will, in his sovereignty over all things, to accomplish his divine purpose. And he will do that in his perfect time. And so when you're facing a trial, when things in your life are not going as you expect, when you're facing physical trials and relationship trials and spiritual trials and emotional trials, the way to get through those trials, my friends, is believing that God is who he says he is. Choosing to make, or make choices based upon that great faith and then respond. And your response will be shown in the actions that you take each day. Every time that Moses made a choice, there was a response. And the same is true for you and I. Faith enabled each obedient act and the pattern of faithful obedience emerged, made Moses the man 
he finally became. It's the same with us. As we live by faith, we will progressively become the persons God wants us to be. Amen? I'm going to ask the men to come forward if they would.